There was a time when the church was seen very favorably by the surrounding culture. Years ago, it seemed like Christians had relative favor with all people. The church was doing wonderful things, bringing hope and healing and bringing life and salvation. And it had a good reputation with those inside and outside. People saw the church as a place where God was at work. But somewhere along the line, things changed. Though the the gospel spread and there was a push to preach the gospel to different nations and different ethnicities, uh, the church seemed to be uh, growing and expanding outward. But back home, there was increasing hostility toward the church. Cultural leaders seemed to have less and less room for Christians and Christian thinking. Before long, the tension was not just between people of different faiths, but it spilled over into the public square, such that even governmental powers and and leaders in the culture, who were at one point at least indifferent towards Christianity, now were starting to actively target Christians as enemies of the people and even enemies of the state. And I'm not talking about the church in our day, I'm talking about the church in the day of Acts. And for a time, the church in Acts had favor with, with the people of Jerusalem. You remember back in the beginning when Pentecost happened and miracles were happening and people were being brought to life and people looked with awe at the, at the church and there was favor initially with those inside and outside the church in the, in the book of Acts. But now as we turn to Acts 12, things seem to have changed. Not only were religious leaders... Uh, Opposed to the Christian movement, now governmental rulers are targeting Christians as well. Why? Because it is popular to do so. The culture in Jerusalem especially was so opposed to Christians that the king looking for popular support could gain favor with the people by executing the leaders of the church. It seemed every force was against the spread of the church. There was inward tension as to who could be part of the church, and now they're facing outward hostility against those who followed Christ. So you have tension inside and outside, and you ask, how would the church endure? How can the church go forward? How can the gospel spread when you're facing enemies on all sides? And the answer is, and this is the theme of our passage this morning, that no power or persecution can stop the advance of the gospel. And that is as true today as it was back then, that no power or persecution can stop the advance of the gospel. That's the theme as we close up this section of the book of Acts. It ends the section in Acts 12. You remember Jesus laid out the program of the book of Acts in Acts chapter 1. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Acts 1 through 12 really deal with the witness of the church in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the surrounding areas. Acts 13 on is going to deal with the witness of the church to the ends of the earth, to the other nations, and then in the last eight or so chapters in Rome specifically. So that's how the, the book of Acts is segmented up. And we're going to stop here, kind of right on the precipice of the gospel, really going out and spreading and advancing all the way to Rome. And then the section concludes with this one thought, that the gospel will not be stopped, that no power or persecution can stop the advance of the gospel. And we'll see that clearly in Herod's persecution and his downfall. The advance of the gospel cannot be stopped. But first we'll see that persecution is sometimes allowed by God. 
though God is sovereign over all things, in fact, because of, because God is sovereign over all things, persecution is allowed by his sovereign wisdom. We see that in verses 1 through 5. God allows persecution. He doesn't decree it. He doesn't do it. But in his sovereignty, he allows the church to experience difficulty. God allows persecution. Verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending, after the Passover, to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. We are here introduced to Herod the king. You might recognize that name. He is not the first Herod to pop up in Scripture. In fact, by some counts, there are five Herods who pop up in Scripture. So there's Herod the Great, the first of the Herods. He was the one who had all the infant males around Bethlehem killed when Jesus was born. That's Herod the Great. Herod Antipas is one of the sons of Herod. He was the Herod who had John beheaded and who was the Herod mentioned in the trial of Jesus, who plays a cameo role in the trial of Jesus Christ. So he was ruling at the time Herod Antipas. Then there's this Herod. He's the fourth Herod mentioned in Scripture, I believe. Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa is the grandson of Herod the Great, the nephew of Herod Antipas. The Roman Emperor Caligula gave him some of the territories to rule in 37 AD. Then the Emperor Claudius gave him all of Palestine and all of Herod the Great's dominion in 41 AD. So we know these events took place uh, around or after 41 AD and before his death in 44 AD. Herod was raised in Rome. He was half Jewish himself, like some of the Herods before. He tried to win favor, the favor of the Jewish people. So there are records of him participating in temple worship, even reading the law publicly. But the most effective way, maybe, to gain favor with the Jewish people in Jerusalem was to attack the Christians. The Jews, by this point, there's a separation between those who were Jewish and those who who believed in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. And the Jewish people at the time did not have... Uh, look kindly upon Christians. They were considered blasphemers for worshiping Jesus, and they were hated for their inclusion of Gentiles and for their uh, dismissal of the Mosaic codes, not requiring adherence to the law. So there was a hatred for Christians that Herod could capitalize on if he wanted to gain favor with the people. Herod was, uh, I guess to use language for the kids, he was a bully. So. Mm-hmm. You're a kid in here and you go to school, probably sometime in your school training, you'll be taught not to be a bully. And there's no bullying allowed in the classroom. And why do bullies bully is because it either makes them feel good or wins them popularity with others. Herod's a bully. And he's bullying the church in this moment. He does it because it does make him popular. And imagine how the Christians felt as their former friends and family, people they knew, were now rejoicing in their persecution. It's a challenging development for Christians in Jerusalem. At one point, it was just the religious leaders opposed to them. Now, it's not just the chief priests. Now, those employed by Rome 
are turning on them. They're becoming enemies of the state. That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4 eight, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. As the Christian church grew into something distinct, it faced pressure on every side, and this pressure resulted in death for some, namely James. James is the brother of John. When you think of the three kind of main disciples who spent the most time with Jesus, Peter, James, and John are them. This is James, who was executed. He is beheaded by Herod Agrippa. R.C. Sproul says this about James's death. A tradition from early sources of church history tells us that when James was beheaded, his guard was so impressed by his faith and his testimony to Jesus that the guard professed faith in Christ and was summarily executed along with James. That's a, a tale of history. We'll find out in heaven if it's true. What's shocking about this, maybe, is how little Scripture is devoted to this. This is one of the twelve, one of the inner three, and just in a sentence, he is removed from the scene. It's almost as if, well, this is just kind of expected. This is normal for the church, this kind of persecution. We don't need a lot of chapters on it. It tells us also that the focus of the book is not on the disciples themselves, but about the Lord over the disciples. But it happens quickly. Just this persecution, this beheading of James, and we move on as the persecution continues, and Peter is then arrested. So you can see there's a targeting of the leaders of the church. Now we'll go on to the next leader of the church in Peter. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover. Uh, You know what that is, the Feast of Unleavened Bread Passover that celebrated Israel's deliverance out of Egypt. That's what the holiday was. It celebrated Israel's salvation and deliverance. It was also, remember, uh, the time when Jesus was crucified, just after Passover had to be in the minds of everyone as James is just killed. Peter is now arrested and awaiting execution until after Passover. Herod didn't want to upset the Jews by executing somebody on Passover, so he waited until after. But the church is sitting there thinking, okay, just a few years ago, this is when Jesus was crucified, and now one of our leaders has been beheaded, and right around the same time, one is coming up. Another Christian leader would die. This kind of persecution was almost becoming regular, and it is a regular thing throughout the history of the church. This is something we need to understand, and I know you do. That persecution is not just a thing of church history. That persecution is a thing of the church present. Uh, So I mentioned last week, I I get the privilege of serving on the board of Multiply, which is our missions agency for the Mennonite Brethren. And part of that role, I get the privilege of hearing what are the prayer requests of Multiply. And I can't share details on some of this, but what I can say is just in the last like two to three weeks... I've received prayer requests for uh, a missionary who is doing evangelism training in a country where it is legal to kill him for sharing Jesus Christ. So uh, across my email, just pray for this person. They're doing evangelism training where it's legal to kill him for it. Elsewhere, a leader of a house church in our missions network is being threatened by his father. His father is saying he will divorce his mother if he doesn't recant his faith. Somewhere else, a pastor is in jail because his son was caught smuggling Bibles. Those aren't things of the history. Those are things that came through my email inbox in the last few weeks that are going on in the world right now on the mission's frontier. These are prayer requests from April and May. 
The church is persecuted now. And God is on the throne. And he's still on the throne. And he allows it. We'll see in a few moments that God can and does intervene at specific times for his purposes. And we don't know why some persecution is allowed, some persecution is stopped. We don't know God's plan or his purposes in all these things, but we know he's on the throne. So how are we to respond as a church? How do Christians respond? They do what the church did here. They pray. This is how the church responded. They earnestly prayed. They prayed to the Lord for help because it was their only course of action. They did not have any earthly power. And they were committed to live humbly and meekly and sacrificially because this is what Jesus demands. So the church from the beginning has turned to prayer as its greatest weapon, seeking the Lord on the throne. They prayed earnestly. They prayed desperately because that was the only course of action they had. And it is the best course of action. It is the best course of action we have. Desperation drives prayer. Some of you have asked, and we talked about it, what is our greatest need? If you could improve anything in your life, what would you improve? And so many people, if you were to take a survey, would respond, I wish my prayer life would improve. I don't have a vibrant, powerful prayer life. Here's how you improve your prayer life. Get desperate. Be placed in a situation where you know that your only course of action is to seek the Lord on high. Because you have no other power, no other ability, no other way to address the situation. Only just to pour out before him and say, God, help. This is where the church was at this moment. This is what happens when the church is persecuted, is that they turn to the Lord in prayer, seeking his help because he is on the throne. And the church prays longingly. We desperately want the end to wickedness. This is how the church prays in Revelation 6.10, the saints asking in heaven, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long, God, until you make all things right? It's a prayer of trust in the sovereignty of God. It's the prayer of the church in Jerusalem. God, will you answer? In the end, we know he will. He will answer all of our prayers. Sometimes, he allows some to die. Sometimes, he intervenes and saves. We don't truly, really know how or why or when God operates according to his purposes. But we know and we trust that ultimately it will be to his glory and for the good of his people. And he will provide justice. That is seen in the rest of the story of Acts 12. First, in verses 6 through 19, God does answer the prayer miraculously. He answers it so miraculously that people can't believe he answered it. Here in verses 6 through 19, God provides deliverance. God provides deliverance. It's a small illustration of what God will ultimately do with all of those who are in Christ. God provides deliverance. Verse 6. 
Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, Peter, that is, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands and the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Stop there. So we read of Peter's escape in the middle of the night. This is not the first time this has happened, that Peter's escaped from prison. Remember way back in Acts 5, 18 through 20, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go out, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. So Peter's made a habit of this, of getting free out of prison through an angel. It may be that Herod heard about his first escape because Herod puts extra security duty on Peter. He assigns four squads to him. That would be four soldiers in one squad. So 16 soldiers are assigned to one man, Peter. They would take shifts every three hours in the middle of the night. There would be two soldiers who would stand outside the prison doors and then two who would be inside the prison cell with Peter chained to him. Have you ever seen a magic show or seen a magician who's an escape artist? Somebody like Houdini, and what would they do? They, they'd shackle him up, put him in a straitjacket, and they'd show you all the chains and the padlocks, and if you have a magician's assistant, that assistant will spin them around and see, here, here's the ways he's bound up so he couldn't possibly get free, right? That's what Luke is doing by detailing how locked up Peter was, emphasizing there's no human way Peter could have gotten out of this, and it isn't a human that frees him. It's an angel who comes, an angel of the Lord is sent to free him. And what is Peter doing when the angel comes? I love this. He's sleeping. Imagine that. He's on the eve of his sure death. His friend James had just recently been beheaded. And here we find Peter at peace. We lose sleep over sports. Like, I'm in the middle of playoff hockey season, and my heartbeat, like, it takes me a while to come off of that after a game. Colorado won last night, it's glorious, but it took me a while to come down off of that. I'm anxious, right? Peter's sleeping, facing his own death. This is what the peace of Christ is. To be facing death itself, and to know, I'll be fine in the end, because I'll be with my Lord. It reminds us of Jesus sleeping on a boat. Aren't you afraid? No, I'm the Lord. You can be at peace in Jesus as Peter was. So the angel comes and he has to like poke him the way my kids might do on a Saturday morning. Uh, get out, <laughs> get up, get dressed. 
And then miraculously the chains fall off. He follows the angels out the door. Peter's still in a stupor. He thinks it might be a vision. He's not fully awake yet. Doesn't realize that actually this is real. He doesn't realize that until he gets out in the street. Maybe the cold air hits him. The angel leaves. And then a gate automatically opens up. Now that might not seem very miraculous to us because we opened our garage doors with clickers this morning and we didn't rejoice in the Lord and say hallelujah. At least I didn't. We have the modern miracle of electricity and such things. But imagine Peter at this time. No force, nothing to move it, but a gate opened on its own. He knows now for sure this is the Lord at work, delivering him from what Herod had planned and what the Jewish people were expecting. And what a heartbreaking verse that is, that there were others who were anticipating his death. When we choose Christ, we have to settle in our minds that he will be enough because others will want our downfall and the Lord's downfall. Peter does have the church, so he visits them. Verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. So Peter goes to the house of Mary. She would have been a wealthy woman because she had a home big enough for the church to gather in. It was kind of an estate. And she was also the mother of John Mark, who's mentioned throughout Scripture, and we believe this is the author of the Gospel of Mark. He was kind of a secretary for Peter. He traveled with Paul and Barnabas. That's where he got his information for that apostolic gospel. And Peter knocks on the door, and a servant girl by the name of Rhoda answers, and we love this detail, right? She's so excited, she goes and tells the others and leaves them outside. She forgot to bring him in. But she must have known him. Peter must have been a frequent member there because she knew his voice. The church inside doesn't believe it, they say, maybe it's his angel, which is a weird phrase. What do they mean by that? Uh, angel can mean messenger, so maybe they thought it was just a Peter's messenger. You could translate it that way. Somebody, Peter had sent a messenger for them. That's probably not the case. I, I think it actually means angel. So maybe they thought this was Peter's like ghost. like He had already deceased, and this was his spirit who was at the door visiting them. Or, I think probably most likely, there's some uh, record of intertestamental Jewish thought and Jewish culture that some believe that people had guardian angels and that sometimes those guardian angels would kind of look like or resemble the ones they were guarding and they represented. So maybe they thought, oh, this is Peter's guardian angel who's visiting us. And if he's visiting us, I'm not doing a good job of guarding. I don't know how, what they thought. Regardless, though, they went to some other theory because they did not think it could be Peter. Which is hilarious because this is what they're praying for. They're praying to God, help, God helps, and they're like, I can't believe it. Praying for something with great sincerity and then to be incredibly surprised when God actually does it. How we found ourselves there before. Sometimes, 
God answers prayers so specifically and strikingly that you have a hard time believing he actually did it. Even if you're praying sincerely. I think this gives us warrant to, without getting too far into the name it and claim it, or without being too presumptuous, I think this gives us warrant to pray boldly before God, confidently knowing that he can answer prayers. James, in his epistle, says, you do not have because you do not ask. We are given encouragement in the New Testament to pray boldly, to ask boldly. James also notes that we should pray for things not based on our passions, but on what is pleasing to God according to his will. So we pray boldly for things particularly that are according to the will of God. And what is within the will of God? Well, I'll give you one example. The salvation of souls is within the will of God. He desires that none perish, but that all come to him in salvation. So we can pray that prayer boldly and confidently and with great earnestness and sincerity. And I know some of you are praying that prayer for family members, for friends. Here, I think, is a passage of Scripture encouraging us to keep praying because you do not know how God might answer that prayer. God is in the business of delivering people. And this is a small illustration of it. It's a picture of the deliverance he will provide for all of his people in the end. One day you will be free. And in fact, you already have been made free in Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, you have been freed by the Spirit to follow Jesus Christ. You're not trapped in sins. You're not stuck on a path to hell. You're not in bondage. If you are in Jesus Christ, you have his spirit and you have what you need to follow him faithfully. Paul says in Romans 8, the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, meaning you are not destined to die spiritually, you are not bound spiritually now, you've been freed from the law to follow him. Peter was delivered as a picture of how we will all be delivered in Jesus Christ and have been in him. They're shocked by it, the church, and Peter says, go report this to James. This James he's talking about is James, the brother of Jesus, not James, one of the three apostles. This is James, the brother of Jesus, who will write the epistle of James, saying, go tell him. And from this moment, Peter will kind of depart the scene. He'll come back in Acts 15, but Acts won't focus much on Peter anymore. Peter will travel away from Jerusalem and maybe return from time to time, but James, the brother of Jesus, will be the chief leader of the church in Jerusalem. And while the church is celebrating Peter's release, the guards are going to have to pay for it. Have you ever seen the meme or um, images that say you had one job? Right? So one picture I saw uh, was a fast food cheeseburger with the cheese just sitting on top. You had one job. Another was a road sign that said, please slow drively. Or another was a road with an arrow pointing right, and then a sign that said, turn left. 
and you had one job and you failed. These guards had one job. Their one job, don't let Peter escape. Peter escaped. There's something called the Justinian Code that will come into effect later in Rome, and the Justinian Code is that, uh, dictates that if there was a guard guarding a prisoner and the guard let that prisoner escape, whatever the sentence was for the prisoner would fall on the guard. It was a way, I'm assuming, to mitigate bribery or corruption or any of those things. So if the prisoner was sentenced to die, you let your prisoner go, you die. Prisoner is sentenced to lose his arm, you let the prisoner go, you lose your arm, right? That's how uh, that's the Justinian Code was enacted later, but Herod was on top of that already. They let Peter go, they're going to die for it. This was an embarrassment and a failure for Herod. This was done. He was, had arrested Peter put him on trial to win favor with people. Now he let Peter go. And in his embarrassment, he took it out on the guards who had let them free. But God will provide justice on Herod himself. We see that in verses 20 through 24. Here, God opposes the persecutor. In Herod. God had allowed persecution, but he had provided deliverance, and now, lastly, he will oppose the persecutor. He not only sets the prisoner free, but he condemns the guilty in Herod. Verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and took his seat upon the throne. And delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. We have here a little story about Herod's demise. It begins with a dispute with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were two coastal cities north of Israel. Um, They were historic trade partners with Jerusalem and Israel. Going back, actually, if you recall in your scripture, way back to Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was built with materials from Tyre and Sidon, right? So they are historic trade partners, a thousand years plus of trade between the two. But there's a dispute. Herod could threaten to shut down operations of those two cities, shut down trade with them, so the people of Tyre and Sidon come to make amends and try to establish peace with Herod. History tells us this all occurred in 44 AD during a festival and games that Herod hosted in honor of the emperor. So there was a festival going on, they were having their own Lollapalooza, and they were celebrating, and people of Tyre and Sidon come, trying to appease Herod. Herod comes out dressed splendidly in robes. He gives a speech, an oration to the people, and the people respond, um, not because they love Herod, but because they want trades to open up. So they say, flatteringly, oh, it's the voice of God and not a man, flattering him with praise. It was good business to do so. And what did Herod do? Yes. He accepted the praise, accepted the honor, accepted worship as God. He did the exact opposite of what Peter did. Remember a couple weeks ago, Cornelius tried to bow down to Peter. Peter said, no, I'm just a man. You don't worship me. 
That's the appropriate Christian response to such kind of worship. Herod does the opposite. He takes the praise on himself. God strikes him down because he will have no competitors to his throne. We sang it earlier before the message, Jesus is Lord. That is the confession of the church. There is one Lord, and there will be one Lord at the end. To prove that Herod is no God, the Lord strikes him down, he's eaten by worms, which is probably another way of saying he had an internal disease. He may claim to be God, but he dies like any man. Some of you reading this might think, you know, this is kind of a fanciful tale. Maybe this is exaggeration on the part of Luke to exaggerate the circumstances. Oh, he died, you know, right there, and that God would strike him down. This kind of seems like the stuff of myth and fable. As it turns out, the ancient historian, Jewish historian, who's not a Christian, the Jewish historian Josephus, wrote about this event, and it, there are a lot of striking similarities in Josephus's account of what happened. I'm going to read a passage from Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, who wrote, writes about this. Listen to what he says about that event. He says, On the second day of the spectacles clad in a garment woven completely of silver so that its texture was indeed wondrous, he entered the theater at daybreak. There the silver, illuminated by the touch of the first rays of the sun, was wondrously radiant and by its glitter inspired fear and awe in those who gazed intently upon it. Straightway his flatterers raised their voices from various directions, though hardly for his good, addressing him as a god. May you be propitious to us, they added. And if we have hitherto feared you as a man, yet henceforth we agree that you are more than mortal in your being. The king did not rebuke them, nor did he reject their flattery as impious. But shortly thereafter he looked up and saw an owl perched on a rope over his head, at once recognizing this as a harbinger of woes. He felt a stab of pain in his heart, he was also gripped in his stomach by an ache that he felt everywhere at once, and that was intense from the start. And Josephus goes on to record that he was carried out immediately and died a few days later. Scripture and history agree on what happened here. Herod took on worship and died for it. I think it's fascinating. This is a very public death. Josephus writes about it. Everybody saw it. And I think what's fascinating about it are a couple things. One, the church wasn't involved in it at all. It wasn't done by Christians. It wasn't even witnessed, probably, by a lot of Christians. This wasn't a Christian thing. This is just a thing that happened in the world. The Christians had no part in. And also that those attending would probably have no context for why this happened. They wouldn't know that this was God's vengeance upon Herod. They wouldn't know that the Lord was sovereignly at work in that moment to strike him down for taking Christ's glory. This is purely God at work. 
And when and if God wants, he is perfectly capable of dealing out his own justice. Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It is an encouragement to us. God will be just in his day. God will bring vengeance and wrath and justice in his day. We may sit and pray, how long, O Lord, how long will you let this happen? And the answer is, not long. At some point, there will come a day when every knee that does not bow to Jesus Christ will receive the same fate, will be struck down by God in his just vengeance and justice. There is a common phrase that's floated around. It's a lie. It says something along the lines of, love wins. Love does not win. A sentiment does not win. A feeling does not win. A person wins, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he is the judge who will stand in victory at the end. And anybody who tries to attempt to rob him of his glory will face the same fate as Herod does here. This is a promise from Scripture and a comfort for Christians. And it's a warning. And I'm speaking to all of you, and I'm speaking maybe specifically to the young who are still making a choice as to what Lord you will follow. The Lord Jesus Christ is gracious and merciful, but do not mistake that grace and mercy for passivity. He is a just judge who will strike down all who do not worship him and who in their own wicked hearts pretend that they should receive glory and honor. This is not something the church does. This is not our part to play. Vengeance is not ours. But it's something the Lord will do. And it should cause fear. Let us never take the glory that belongs to Jesus Christ the King. And it should be a great comfort for all of us who have chosen to follow Christ. God, who is love, will win in the end. And nothing will stop his victory or the advance of his good news spreading. Because what happens as Herod is struck down? He dies, but the gospel advances and the church multiplies. And that is happening whether you like it or not. And it has happened for 2,000 years. Whether you like it or not, the gospel is going out and the church is advancing. Because of our greatness? No. But because Jesus is Lord. And we have a choice. We can be with the king in victory by his grace, by his mercy, by his forgiveness, not because of anything we've done. Or we can think we should go our own way. But we can't stop what's happening. God wins. And this gospel goes out, and this is the message that's going to go out regardless. Christ has come to seek and save the lost. He has died on the cross for the sins of the world. He rules now, after rising again, reigning in heaven, 
He will come again to judge the world. And anyone, anyone, anyone who repents and believes can stand with him in victory by his grace. That message is going out. The Lord will ensure it. Nothing that opposes him can stop it. We as a church have a choice as to whether we're going to be part of that. It's going to happen whether we rise or fall. We have a choice. Can we be part of that gospel message of salvation going out before Jesus returns as judge and king? James Boyce wraps up this chapter with this thought. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. No power of persecution can stop the advance of the gospel. Jesus will stand victorious and we can be victorious in him. And that is our comfort this morning in the midst of any type of trial. Would you pray with me? Father, help us to heed the warning and take the comfort of this passage that you love your people dearly and you will ensure that that in life and death that your people who are called by your name, who have chosen to follow you by your grace, by your mercy, by your sheer just forgiveness and um, patience with us, Lord, that you've ensured that we will stand with you in the end, that there will be victory for the church to the praise of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that comfort, Lord. We thank you that we can sleep in the face of death because we know our Savior, and our King. And Lord, let us take the warning of the passage. That any who stand opposed to Jesus Christ will fall in the end. That there is no kingdom on this earth that can impose the kingdom of God in Christ and his church. Let us go out from here, and because of that, Lord, boldly, faithfully, humbly, And knowing that this victory really has nothing to do with us and has everything to do with Jesus. And let us stand in him and seek you with prayer. We thank you, Lord. Amen.